Sego, Sego, Sego. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory. Our podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services with the technical assistance of Humble Man Recording. My name is Lisa Venevery from the Mohawk Nation and the Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna Road to Your Name program and the host of this podcast. Welcome to the Ohate Negasuna Road to Your Name podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our new website at www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located on the bottom of the page of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services Toronto, Canada. This episode was recorded by telephone. Welcome to this episode of Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast. This podcast is being recorded via telephone with our guest on May 31st, 2021. And I'd like to welcome our um, guest on this episode, uh, Minister Mark Miller from Ottawa. Welcome, Minister Miller. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Well, um, we have a lot to talk about, so we, we should get to it. I, did, I wanted to greet you with Sego, though, in, in um, the language, because I know you, you've you um, learned some of our Mohawk language. Sego, <laughs> what's <laughs> Um Have you been keeping up on your language learning? Uh, I, I, I try to... I try to dedicate about an hour a day every morning. That kind of slips to at least um, some passive listening to, to SoundCloud shows uh, in Mohawk. And um, I have my I have the uh, the first year course that I'm I'm following out of uh, online out of uh, Six Nations with Awanadeka, mm-hmm. as you know. Yeah. Um, and then I kind of I kind of mix and match to 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 make it. Uh, <laughs> I guess. Uh, more, uh, I guess, to do, just to throw things around. I have some immersion books from Ganawage as well, so it's it's a bit of a it's a work it's a work in progress. A very beautiful, but as you know, super difficult language and oh. um, you know, worth the effort. I think it is. It is a beautiful language, and and I'm lucky because I, as I learn myself, I can still hear my grandfather's and grandmother's voice in the language in my ears. And how it should be, you know, the rhythm of it and is very beautiful. So I wanted to talk a bit with you um, today about Indigenous people and the pandemic. Um, what can I know a lot of um, First Nations people now have been uh, vaccinated. I think the latest um, statistic is about 75 percent of adults. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah, it's it's sort of uneven, I would say, across the country, and you know, very much depends um, on on individual communities. But as a whole, with uh, with the prioritization that our government 
um, rightly made for Indigenous peoples to get access to uh, to the vaccine. We've gotten up to uh, 75% as an as an average across the country, um, with with some importantly uh, those second doses well on their way as well. So it's it's, it's really encouraging. Um, obviously, we're not out of the woods uh, by any stretch of the imagination just yet. But when we look at some of the, the trends and tendencies um, that we can see and tease out from Indigenous communities in, in, in how the pandemic is now expressing itself, you see a lot of flare-ups, obviously, in those that are unvaccinated. And those people tend to be more, um, to be younger in the younger segments of the population. So there are some remaining challenges that will remain in Indigenous communities um, well after perhaps COVID is an afterthought for um, for, not for you know the non-indigenous segments of the population is something I'm uh, keenly focused on as we ensure everyone has the opportunity to consider and, and take a first dose and then get their second dose. So, um, you know, modest success I would say, uh, but um, as I'm still we're still in the midst of this third wave um, with the light at the end of the tunnel, I'm, I'm still very much um, focused on making sure everyone gets that opportunity to get a shot. Yeah, you know, with myself personally, I, I think I'm like um, some people, um, representative of some people in First Nation communities where it took me a long time to decide about vaccination. And because because of a variety of reasons, because of our, tra- our own traditional medicines, which I which I truly believe in. And, um, you know, and there is distrust, you know. We indigenous people deal with distrust on a on a daily um, occurrence. So there was all of those types of things going into it, and and it it. I think I'm represented of people who are maybe taking a long time to decide. What 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 is your thoughts on that? Well, I, I you know I'm someone who firmly believes that um, people need to have uh, a fully informed choice uh, as to my job is to, is to give people the options and, and make sure that the opportunities are presented in a culturally sensitive way, including in, in people's own languages, if, they, if that is what they desire and, and giving the maximum amount of opportunity. So information um, is key to that consent process of offering that vaccine. Uh, we, we know from our experiences of how, how the Canadian medical system has treated Indigenous peoples as second-class, third, even third-class citizens, that um, there is that legitimate skepticism and mistrust of the healthcare system. And it, it's understandable that, you know, why would you go in and get a vaccine if you think you're going to get treated like crap? Uh, and that's legit. It's not, we're not talking about, you know, what you would normally see as a, as a quote-unquote anti-vaxxer. This is real and, re- and reasonable apprehension towards the healthcare system that's treated people badly and has treated Indigenous medicines badly. And so conversely, uh, what grounds is there for me to, to question to question that? Um, I think what I've seen cautiously is, is very much vaccine confidence, but it's taken a lot of effort. Um, it's, it's led by Indigenous uh, pandemic response teams. It's led by elders who are obviously the most vulnerable and uh, among already vulnerable populations. And so what we've seen is really some amazing work being done despite the odds in Indigenous communities across Canada. And again, I do hate to generalize, but I am generalizing and conscious of that, that um, there's been amazing work done to offer people a, a suite of alternatives. And, and for some people, it does take time. Um, you know, again, generalizing, uh, which I'm moving way too much so far, but the older segments of the population have been amazing. They've really shown the way um, in, in the younger segments where 
uh, people have gone to get their first shots. There is some, you know, a timing issue with getting that, getting that second shot that we see forming. But um, it goes towards what we see as, as an evergreen strategy of offering a suite of vaccines to Indigenous communities and people that take a little more time to, to take that decision. Um, we need to respect that. And uh, it leads, it frankly leads to better medical outcomes that are, that are tangibly measurable. So um, I have no, um, I, I, I don't cast any negative aspersions on someone that may decide that that isn't for them. Um, my job is to get and work with communities to get that information into communities in a culturally sensitive way and, and offer vaccines that, um, that I know will be life-saving, but um, it's mm-hmm. not up to me to impose them. Well, as far as um, Canada goes globally, where is um, Canada as a nation in, in, in the pandemic, would you say? Um, I think if you were to, Canada is a very privileged country uh, and we, we secured a suite of vaccines that has allowed us um, as of yesterday to be at uh, close to 60% of the population uh, eligible for uh, a, a first dose, which is great. It puts us among the leaders We're I think we're closing in on the United Kingdom for those that have had their first shot. You see that other countries starting to plateau around 50 or 60%. The U.S. certainly has, while they, whereas they got a great head start. We've had a, um, a, two dro- a stretched out two-dose strategy. Um, obviously, you can't get a second dose if you don't get your first. But that puts us, um, uh, it puts us well ahead of, of the pack internationally, which, um, which will mean we will be more resilient coming out of this and, and dealing with a number of issues that I'm sure are near and dear to your heart. Um, that we have to get around to that have been delayed or stalled because of COVID. So we're, we're doing well. Um, it, it's always, again, a focus of, of, of getting that, get, get, getting those vaccines into communities and, and getting, getting people vaccinated so that we can, uh, we can build back better. Um, but again, when I take a step back and look at um, the rest of the world, those variants are forming in, in countries with large populations that are unvaccinated. And then that puts everyone at risk. So we're, we're not all safe. We're not. We're the, we aren't safe until everyone has had the chance to get vaccinated, regardless of what passport or identity you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this really um, has been a eye opener and a and a normalcy changer for sure for everyone. And I just, um, you know, I'm I'm so anxiously waiting for Ontario to open back up again. But when I look at the United States, they—it seems that even though they're close to our close neighbor, they've acted totally different throughout the pandemic, and I don't quite understand it. But um, that's that's the way I've seen it. What about you? Yeah, a little. I think, um, and, and I get—you know—when we were, I've kept a keen eye on our on our our friends to the south because of the um, the impact on indigenous communities and um, and 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 how covid was hitting them and what we saw was a a different scenario because of um, you know public health measures that um, that that perhaps weren't put into place uh, as quickly as possible or um, you know just coordination that was that was that was missing um, that comes with uh, national that comes through national leadership, but also direct engagement with um, with communities, which is one of the things that we did immediately. That um, doesn't cost anything. It means you just reach out to local health authorities and communities, and while they may be understaffed, getting that information and the pub the latest and greatest about a <clears throat> about a, a virus that is 
very, very uncertain in how it behaves and, and, and who it affects. I'm, I'm talking about a year ago or a year more, more ago was, was key to making sure that communities started to put into place their pandemic plans. And then making sure that those communities had the financial backing of the government of Canada to do what they know how to do best, which is protect their own, particularly during during epidemics. So mm-hmm. I look at the suite of measures that were put into place by Canada um, and, and, um, and, 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 and in partnership with Indigenous communities, their own customs and pandemic plans, and I see a measure of success. It shows in the numbers. Um, indigenous communities, by the numbers we saw, whether it's through our experience with H1N1 or the numbers that were coming out of the U.S. that we see through the Center for Disease Control are three and a half to five times more um, likely to get COVID uh, for, you know, the historic realities, um, overcrowding being a main driver <clears throat> of that uh, and, 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 and legacy of colonial of colonialization and, uh, and colonization. And we, we saw that early with, with the Navajo that were hit extremely hard um, so we could look a bit to the U.S. and say, uh, well, that's coming here if we don't do something a little different or prepare ourselves better. Again, it wasn't perfect, but it was certainly something we were looking at. And, um, uh, you know, the leadership starts at the top and goes across um, across across governments. And, it, you know, what I've seen throughout the pandemic is Indigenous leadership, pretty much with, 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 with very few exceptions, standing up and um, and protecting their people, letting the health authorities in their respective communities take the lead, uh, take the airwaves when they had radio stations and uh, make sure everyone was being super vigilant. And despite, you know, living conditions, despite um, comorbidities and the likelihood to be more severely impacted by COVID, um, sadly, I, I, I do look at mortality rates and on reserve, they're lower than off reserve. Um, one of the reasons is because Indigenous leadership did so well. Um, another reason is that when we saw when we saw the the pandemic hitting old old folks' homes, um, we moved quite quickly to ensure that communities that did have long-term care facilities were were prepared for that. Um, and so, you know, constant communication, constant coordination, um, and even when that is requires difficult conversations, has been key, and I think will be key to come out of this pandemic. And I think we can. My greatest concern is, will we learn from this or will we go back to where we were? And I still don't have an answer to that. I'm hopeful, but I don't have an answer to that. Do you think um, masks are here for to stay? Masks are here to stay? Or do you think that, you know, we could get back to being not wearing masks? You know, I, I think there will be. Uh, some relaxation of of the rules. Um, the key will be to have an evergreen strategy that requires vigilance and testing. And I think when I say this about those that are most vulnerable, um, kids that under 12 who are not eligible yet, I know the the, the main vaccine companies are doing studies on on, on kids uh, as low as two, um, but that's not that that's not conclusive yet. But we know that with COVID popping up and in segments of the population that are unvaccinated, those are the most vulnerable, as well as immunocompromised people um, and people that haven't had the opportunity to take the vaccine. There is sort of this circuit breaker concept where when you break the back of COVID, it just doesn't spread because you've got this reproduction rate under one for a sufficient amount of time, so it's just not reproducing. But, you know, we'll have to stay vigilant. And I I can't take off your mask and party just yet just because you got your Mm -hmm. second vaccine. So uh, Mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those things there. We'll have to I suspect it'll be a longer process with some trial and error 
and probably some frustration, but I hopefully masks are, I like seeing people's faces. So it's, mm-hmm. it'd, it'd be nice to get the masks off. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I, I really like to switch gears right now and, and, um, and talk about something that's, that's happened just recently. Yesterday I went to a, um, gathering at the, um, the Mush Hall, the Mohawk Institute here in Brantford, and we honored the 215 children whose bodies were discovered recently in um, on the grounds of the Kamloops Indian Residential School in BC. And I know the country by now knows what happened, that that has happened. And um, I'd just like to talk a little bit about that for the rest of our time we spend together. And um, I'd like to know your thoughts um, when you heard about that. Um, look, I, I'd, I'd read the parts of the Truth and Reconciliation report on, on residential schools and sites, and I, this it didn't prepare me at all for um, the shock of, of the news uh, that, I, that I read. I was on a call, um, I'd read it five minutes before jumping on a call with um, a group of Indigenous doctors that I'd been um, invited to be on with, with Minister Bennett, um, including, I'm sure you know, Karen Hill and just the Horn. Um, yes. And you know, the, the, the sentiment of anger and paralysis and deep sorrow was, was palpable. And it's the number which, sadly, I suspect is... is sure to increase and certainly is <clears throat> in my mind only the tip of the iceberg of what exists around um, around the country is is is, is devastating um, and immensely triggering for um, every uh, every every community in Canada indigenous community in Canada and indeed should be for every person in Canada um, we say this is a a dark chapter in our history, but it's very much an unfinished chapter and an ongoing shame and tragedy. I, I you know, these are kids that didn't get to grow up, um, were taken, and, and it's not just one community. This is one of the, a lot of the as you know, the, um, the, the Mohawk Institute and Kamloops were two of the biggest in the country, uh, and it's it's a story of horror and, and, and tragedy. There are dozens of nations that were that had their children sent to Kamloops. So um, right now, my focus is is making sure that Indigenous Services Canada can support. I have to play my role as a minister in this time and ensure that they have the support they need to to to, to deal with the trauma and hopefully have some measure of healing as they get together and establish protocols on on what to do and how to honor these. How to honor these spirits, <clears throat> um, and then look to the country and realize that we're a country that's in pain right now, um, and this is something—a truth that needs to be further told. <clears throat> that it's a painful truth, though, but you you can't get to healing without speaking about it more, mm-hmm. uh, as triggering as it is. I, you were you were there. I, I suspect you probably have some reflections on that yourself. I mm-hmm. I received a message from my friend Amos Key who is there as well and um, he's done so much work into the area that I, I, I relied quite heavily on his thoughts at this time um, and so I I know I've spoken a lot but um, 
I, I do struggle to find the words. Yeah, it it was very somber. It was, and some of the um, survivors from that school were there as well yesterday and spoke to everyone, um, and and retold the, some of their stories. Um, we did put moccasins on the steps um, to honor the children, and then they were taken down to um, Archusewood Park. Um, later on, um, it, it really hit home for me as well, because I, I, one of my great aunts died at that school, as well as a great uncle on each side of my family. And, um, they were very young. They were one, my great aunt was, uh, um, 11, I believe. And my great uncle was 14. So, um, those deaths were were known about though they at the time of the deaths they were known about but you know it's still trauma like after it just brings it all back and we we continually rethink about what happened there and about these children who who you as you mentioned never had a chance to grow up or or have children of their own, or it would be great-grandparents probably by now, of who knows how many descendants, right? And it's just, um, you know, yeah, you're right. Sometimes the words don't come. Um, just the feelings come. So what do you think the, the federal government could do? Um, you know, do you think that now that that grave has been discovered that all the residential school grounds should be looked at in terms of um, graves. And, and I think it's an excellent natural question to what comes next. We've, we've talked, I think as a nation, nations, a lot about reconciliation and we still have, it's, it's a, it's a very painful reminder that we have, um, an equal obligation towards the truth um, because you can't have any healing without more truth, as painful as it is. Yeah. Um, the, the, the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, um, specifically ask, on the, ask us through um, calls 71 to 76 to proceed with the um, uncovering of further truths um, in a respectful fashion. Obviously, um, Call number 71 is one that deals with coroners and investigations that are largely led with our provincial partners, um, but we fully support them. Uh, calls 72 through 76 are about honoring the past and, and about uncovering further truths. Um, this is something that we can move on, obviously financially to support, uh, to support investigations. Um, call to action 76 is particularly important in its um, in what it says and how it says it. it, it asks us to respect and ensure that Indigenous communities have the lead. And, and I think that's important to remember. There are, um, as I mentioned I, earlier, these, these, these places exist around the country. It is, very, um, it is very plausible that there may be some communities that, um, that choose a path that is their own and will need to respect it. Um, but I, you know, I think the important thing to remember is that while, while we support those investigations and uncoverings of truths, and, and I believe personally that these truths do need to be laid bare, um, 
in terms of the numbers, the bodies, and figuring out um, how to proper care, how to properly care for them and respect them. That um, there is technology out there that can help with that that perhaps didn't exist a couple decades ago. So that that um, and Kamloops had been spending well over a decade and even more time on this particular project. So it's something they've been working on really hard for a long time. But I think you'll see that the government will be prepared to support further of these um, as painful as they are um, and no matter what they lead to. Mm -hmm. We're sort of at a moment where we just can't look away. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think also with that, um, the government needs to um, support any kind of healing initiatives that people that in communities would like to do as well. Because healing is so important. And again, this is a, a longer, a longer an immediacy in terms of immediate trauma. Uh, there are hotlines that um, that can deal with people that is that are in distress. There, um, I should have them on hand, but they're at the TRC website. Those that feel like donating can go to the TRC website and see where the most appropriate way to do so is. I think everyone is eager to see how they can play their part, but I think non-Indigenous Canadians have to realize that there are people that are hurting right now um, and are in deep pain and that pain expresses itself in many ways um, mm-hmm. um, and none of none of it is um, n- none of all, all, all of it has its value so I, I think that um, going forward there is that role uh, Lisa that, that the federal government will have to play and in many ways in supporting mental health we know how traumatic the pandemic has been on people's minds um, but th- there's much more that's underlying that and, get, and gets fueled by yeah. these by these by these acute instances of something that happened over um, a period of time to people's aunts, uncles, um, cousins, and it's still very real in people's minds. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you've been the Minister of Indigenous um, Services. Is that your title, Minister of Indigenous Services? Yep. And for a while now, um, what, what's been your biggest challenge of your job, would you say? Oh, and in fact, you know, it's funny. But it's, I was trying to figure out the other day how long it had actually been, and it's only been since November of, um, of 2019. It just has felt quite long because of um, a pandemic and because of the, you know, the, the weight of a, of a number of these issues. But um, it, it, in, in the grand scheme of things, it's actually been quite a short time. Um, I certainly have learned a lot. I, I think that the that there are many challenges to this. Uh, it's hard to pick any particular one. I think um, I. I the role that we I realize that we have to continue to play as a government to foster more education among our own non-indigenous people in Canada is um, is an immense challenge I think to anything that we do uh, and I guess in perspective we've you know, the, the amounts that the Trudeau government has invested in indigenous communities whether it's healthcare, schools uh, water all things that are critically important in closing socioeconomic gaps and that, that fuel this type of trauma um, they can't come without the proper type of um, of engagement, and that requires careful building of trust that can be easily broken and has been easily betrayed in the past. And I think that, um, you know, in any sort of relationship building or a relationship of this nature, which the Prime Minister believes and keeps saying is our most important relationship, we often forget that it is one that, um, that can only thrive on trust, uh, that is easily broken um, and frankly, legitimately looked on with some skepticism. And so mm-hmm. I, 
that's a, that's a, that type of engagement type is, 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 a, is a challenge. I have a very large department that um, luckily and is privileged to have many, many Indigenous voices. Um, their voices are important to everything I do. Um, and often, as you've seen, perhaps they're not treated fairly within the department. And that's something that, that bothers me. Um, mm -hmm. And when we can fix it with easy solutions, we do. But the difficult ones are, are difficult for a reason. And so uh, that that preoccupies me uh, in, because I, you know, there will come a day where I will no longer be the Minister of Indigenous Services. And I think um, it will be a failure if if we haven't built a, a system that can survive any change of a particular person or staff, but that has sort of the muscle memory to, to move this relationship along, which when it comes to some of the longer things um, will outlive um, many of our mandates. Mm -hmm. Well, I won't ask you about the rewards of your job because I'm sure the rewards have been many by meeting a lot of Indigenous people across this um, Turtle Island. Well, I get to meet a lot of great. I, I get to meet great people that really care about what they're doing, care about their people, whether that's leadership or. I think it's one of the the most positive things I've gotten out of some of the language classes that I take and the people that I meet that are, you know, fighting against um, incredible odds to vitalize their languages. I meet people that are passionate about. It may not be necessarily political in the conventional sense of the word, but. They care passionately about their people and the survival of their language. So I've, I've met some great people. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's one of the benefits that I would have. Um, I, I don't like to compare myself to what I would perhaps experience in another ministry because I'm obviously very focused on mine. But I think there is something uniquely different about the position of privilege I occupy. Um, and, and part of the benefit to that is, is that I, I, get, I do get to meet great people that are passionate about um, changing the course of this country. Wow. I know you and I haven't met personally in in person yet, but I hope to meet you one day when you visit our community at Six Nations. I hope it's soon. Yeah, and, me too. I mean, I, we've, I've, Lord knows I've tried, but <laughs> so we've been impeded by a pandemic. I was there a while back, but way, way before I became minister. So mm -hmm. um, I'd love to get down and meet you. I know we've had some exchanges over email and, and messenger or whatnot, but... Mm -hmm. uh, Hope it can continue and we can meet in person. Okay, great. Well, I would I'd like to say Yahweh to Minister Mark Miller for talking with us today on um, the Road to Your Name podcast. Yahweh, Minister Miller, and Onigiwahi. Onigiwahi. Yahweh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Yohate Negasunha. The Road to Your Name podcast, which has been produced by Aboriginal Legal Services and hosted by me, Lisa Vinevery. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our new website at www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word Donate, located on the bottom of the page of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services Toronto, Canada. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. Yeah.
are any listeners of our podcast today who may need to talk to a professional about this hard topic we're discussing in the, in some part of the podcast, you can call the Indian Residential School Survivor Society. It's a 24-hour national crisis line at 1-866-925-4419.